What defines success? You used to be able to stand at the side of the road, wait for traffic to ease, and then scamper across. Now, if you're not ready to walk into traffic, you're not going to get to the other side. What happens when you get knocked down? I can't say I enjoyed every single painful incident, but I knew I had a great job. What makes some people radiate? I must say that I had what I thought to be every day the best job in the world. I always enjoyed going to the office. This is Radiate. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Radiate, the show where we interview some of the world's most successful people to find out how they work their way to the top. This week, it's the commish joining us, David Stern, the former commissioner of the NBA. He's a legend in the world of basketball. David oversaw the league for three decades and grew it into the multi-billion dollar franchise it is today. Helped by some household names like Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, and others. Now, before we jump into this, I want to warn you that I was suffering from a terrible case of laryngitis, which meant my voice was strained. So I may sound a little bit off to you. So I wanted to give you that heads up. Thank you also to those who've been following me for all your well wishes. I think you're still going to be really fascinated by our guest, Commissioner Emeritus of the National Basketball Association, David Stern. David, so good to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be here. I've been so looking forward to this conversation. There's so many questions that I have for you. Okay, so let's start with, you know, I was reading through your bio, David, right? I mean, obviously, so many people know your career and they and they know you so well. But I always wondered, because your background is actually in law, right? I mean, you started off as a lawyer before you went to the NBA. So did you have like some sort of, you know, deep-seated passion for basketball and you just found your way to it or what i i always had a deep-seated passion for basketball but it wasn't the centerpiece of my career hunt i just happened into it uh as a kid on basketball i used to you know i grew up at a time when you read the newspaper from the back to the front it wasn't just the post of the daily (laughs) news there was the mirror there were other you know, not tabloid form, but the Herald Tribune, the Journal American, a whole list of newspapers now defunct. But I was a sports fanatic living and growing up in Manhattan. Right. And I was a big Knicks fan. So I loved, uh, I loved basketball and always have. Did you play? Uh, yes, but recreationally. <laughs> I, I broke my nose. I uh, did my ACL. Uh, you know, I... I uh, I used to be a five foot ten. I was a five foot ten forward as a kid, and then when I stayed the same height, and maybe even have shrunken a little bit, uh, I, I got to be a slow guard because <laughs> I couldn't play with the big boys. So I just uh, and I did my ACL actually in a lawyers league. Oh, really? Yeah. So uh, it's kind of interesting. And as it relates to the job, I went to work at a firm. It was then known as Proskauer, Rose, Getz, and Mendelssohn. And lo and behold, they had uh, the NBA as a client. And so so that's how you came around to them. That's how I came around to them. Totally serendipitous. So how did you go, though, from being legal counsel to the NBA to actually running one of the biggest sports leagues in the world? Well, let's go back to 1978 
when after 12 years at the firm and I had become a partner there, uh, Larry O'Brien said, would you join us here? Right. He was the former commissioner. He was the commissioner. Yeah. And I joined him, but I was actually the 24th employee of the NBA. Huh. So your description of the biggest... That was relatively young then, world, but yeah. Well, it was... People thought I was crazy. You don't give up a partnership with a law firm to go work for this league whose games uh, three seasons ago, the finals were on uh, were on tape delay on CBS. <laughs> right. And I'd say in, by 1978, I'm guessing that our, our revenues are probably, uh, were probably about... A hundred million dollars. That's all in. A hundred million dollars. Local wow. television gate receipts, etc. So you know. So now, I guess by the time I stepped down in 2014, I bet the revenues were approaching six billion, and the, the games were televised in 200 and some odd countries, and right. sort of it changed. On my watch, you know, I was reading also in your bio that when you when you became commissioner, that was also the time when then Michael Jordan got into the league. Uh, yeah, we let Charles Barkley. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, like you suddenly had not you suddenly, but that was like when these big legends yeah. you know, began, right? But well, remember in '79 we drafted Larry and Magic, and so that long ago, I can't believe okay. that. And I'm kind of protective of the guys that came before. Uh, we had this guy named Bill Russell who won 11 championships. We had this these gentlemen named Kareem and <laughs> Dr. J and right. Elgin Baylor and Jerry West. So the NBA always had superstars, except I would say that at their height, Russell and Chamberlain were probably playing on TV in front of the same number of people that saw LeBron in high school <laughs> on ESPN. You know, right. it's a... It just it, wasn't, it, yeah. It, it wasn't there. So it isn't the, you know, greatness so much as the media exposure. The exposure, the yes. distribution, right? right? That's correct. Uh, but there is sort of like this sense of like the NBA before and after Michael Jordan, I guess, do you think? No, well, it's the NBA before and after everybody. You know, they thought we were going to go out of business when Dr. J retired or when Larry and Magic went off the scene or when Michael retired. But the reality of it is new stars. now in today's newspaper, you look and see Steph Curry is the uh, in the class of uh, Babe Ruth, uh, Wayne Gretzky. And Rocky Marciano. Okay, he he probably is. I don't, you know, I think he's a great basketball player. But th several years ago or three years ago, it was LeBron. And right. then you, and, and actually. Or Kobe Bryant. And then it was Kobe. Uh, I'm working backwards. Right. And, <laughs> and of course, this great shot that Steph took was what it took to win in a game with Oklahoma City. Where you got Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant, or likely two future Hall of Famers. So the blessing for the NBA, and really, which is the secret sauce of a successful commissionership, is you got to have good play. It's good yeah. to have good players, it's right? And then you can do what you do to promote them, 
to extend the league because of them to deal with consumer products and sponsorships and ticket sales and the like. And so the the pure ingredients of any sports league are its athletes. Well, yeah, and the, the next Hall of Famer is being born right now, I'm sure. Correct. He's probably, he's you know, the next Hall of Famer is playing. A future Hall of Famer is probably coming out of college in June. But right now, future Hall of Famers are being minted at every level of the basketball stage. Exactly. Well, you know, talking about like, the, the league and sort of you know the survive not e- not even just their survival but the flourishing of the league. I mean your career. I mean talk about flourishing. I mean you were able to lead the NBA for thirty years. I mean that's a record long time. How did you like? How did you thrive and survive that long at the top? Well, I must say that I had what I thought to be every day the best job in the world. And I always enjoyed going to the office. Always, always every you could really every, say every day. Yes, I never. I can't say I enjoyed every single painful incident or every <laughs> lockout or every you know player misbehavior, et cetera, or referee right. misbehavior. But I knew I had a great job, and uh, I knew all the owners. There was a point in time where no owner was in the league that hadn't come in through me, either as general counsel, executive vice president, or commissioner. Mm. So we were all sort of this NBA family of a type. And, uh, you know, it was uh, a, a puzzle, and I like puzzles. And, and there were so many changes occurring and it was, okay, how does this change affect us? How does that change affect us? So, you know, I did, uh, it sounds like ancient history. Like I used to roll my eyes when, you know, older lawyers would sit there telling war stories. And now I'm doing it right here with Betty. Uh, <laughs> in 79, I did the first television contract, cable television contract for the NBA. Right. It was $400,000. Wow. And it was for a network that didn't have a formal name. It was soon to become USA Network, and it had four million subscribers. Hmm. So you can. So that was a, an attempt to use that new technology. And then after that came uh, satellite, and we were early adopters of a right. you know direct TV. And then we. We're dealing with digital cable, and that was kind of interesting. And then DirecTV was joined by Dish. Right. Kelly Ergen came on the scene. So you've seen th- and so then many iterations. We had, uh, right. And then we had, uh, you know, uh, this thing called the Internet. You know, if you sit with a group of either college graduates or, or probably high school graduates or anything, you know, oh, no, there's always been an Internet. Right. There's always been an ESPN, but there hasn't always been an ESPN or an internet. And I, I think that's always the lesson that I take, uh, which is, you know, you, you're going to be judged ultimately not by what you, you know, uh, not by any specific thing, but how you react to changes that not only couldn't you 
anticipate, but you couldn't imagine. Well, and how did you do that? Like, how did you keep ahead of the game? Because it's easy, right, to, you know, eventually feel like, hey, wait a minute, I'm the dinosaur here. we were, I was surrounded by, you know, 1,200 people ultimately who were busy pushing each other. I would push them, they would push back at me, we would push at each other. So we were always testing and trying. So 10 minutes after I saw a presentation by YouTube, which was at that time Chad Hurley, before Google bought YouTube, we were the first channel on YouTube. Mm. At the same time, I saw a presentation by Second Life, which I think is now a German porn site with an (laughs) avatar of me running around on it because we tried them both at the same time. So you win some, you lose some, but, uh, you know... But you have to try it. You've got to try it. You have to, you know, I say you have to step into traffic in order to get the other side of the road. And we stepped into traffic a lot. and, And we enjoyed each other's company, this great group of people that I... But you mentioned like, but you mentioned something very key, which is that like you knew all the owners and you knew them all very well. And it was kind of like a club. So I think part of it is that you networked really well, right? I mean, isn't that also part of your your durability? The durability was uh, from the ownership side, we started out so low in valuation and everything else that as long as we were going up, the owners used to use every occasion to bust my chops a little (laughs) bit. But, you know, we were... Succeeding. Uh, we were succeeding, yeah. et cetera. And I think it's, uh, and then uh, it was the owners as well joined in because they were getting the spirit. And so we could call upon people, whether it was Brian Roberts at Comcast or or Ted Turner at uh, Turner Communications or Paul Allen, who owned Portland, or Mark Cuban, who was broadcast.com and has a penchant for all things uh, technology. The owners were very generous in sharing their insights. You know, on the one hand, they would yell at us and do whatever and have to, I had to find them, et cetera. On the other hand, you would call them up and almost the same day and say, what do you think about this? Oh, that's, you know, different. People would have think, hmm. you know, for example, with Mark Cuban, people thought we were mortal enemies. Really? We were anything but. We were just... Uh, you just had disagreements. I, well, we had disagreements that I would, on the one hand, find him for some snarky comment about <laughs> refereeing, and then I would call him up and say, okay, now what do you think about thus and so right and so and 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 there'd be no hard feelings we'd just be like this is business no this is business this is business um you know one of my prized possessions in my new office is a photo uh signed by mark when we were together saying you made me i said of course i did mark without me finding you and making you famous no one would ever know you but he's a (laughs) very successful businessman investor uh, and basketball operator. And so um, I, I always enjoyed all the owners. It right. wasn't so, so much networking, but we were we had this common goal that where the share, you know, we have a unique situation in sports. The shareholders are also your board of directors. Right. But they compete openly with each other. And if they don't have somebody there to adjudicate the relationships among them, be chaos. It can slide into chaos pretty easily. So as long as we were focused on the center at the league office, I used to tell the guys they and the girls, 
you don't report to any one owner. You, you, you report to the board ultimately and your job is to figure out what's best for the league mm. rather than for any one franchise because inevitably there is going to be disagreement about right. where things should go. But the place I think where we were successful is we we managed to uh, shepherd the owners, not not make them do things, but shepherd them to the right conclusion, which is there are times when the interests of an individual franchise are not to be considered compared to what's in the interest of the league. What would you say was the hardest, like hardest moment in your career, if you could pick one, the hardest moment? Oh boy, I would say the hardest moment was when we learned that magic was HIV positive Hmm. and uh, that he was by all rational expectations going to die in 1991. I mean, that was a, that, that certainly gets into my top five. Wow. And I remember uh, that too. Yeah. I remember that moment when that news came out. And, you know, we had a lot of things that we had to consider. One was how much support we give him. And we didn't really think about it twice, but we realized after the fact when one owner suggested to me that we should do some polling because you're a little bit out in front of the curve. People forget that the United States public was really uh, hysterical about HIV and AIDS. But polling, what do you mean polling? Polling, getting opinion, public opinion to, to see whether we, our unqualified support of magic was going too far. And mm. we we thought that that was folly that we had the you know that we had an opportunity to lead and we did but it was no but and, I remember at the time though I mean being HIV positive I mean that was like a scarlet letter oh my you know there was a young child in Indiana his name was Ryan White yes and he was banned from school because he was HIV positive since blood Kids didn't want to touch him. No. Yeah. Blood transfusions. He was a hemophiliac and he'd gotten a bad transfusion. And he was thrown out, basically thrown out of school. Yep. That was that. Doctors were petrified because under various federal, state, whatever regulations, you weren't allowed to ask your patient whether he or she was HIV positive. Mm-hmm. And you weren't allowed to test. And yet there are certain surgeries where the surgeon is a wash in blood. A wash in blood. And there were no uh, there were no testing rules of any kind. We weren't allowed to test because of various local, federal, whatever the laws were, and a collective bargaining agreement. So so you really, you know, couldn't say, okay. We're going to test everybody, and then what? We're going to throw you out if you are HIV positive or not? It was a nightmare. We we were a lot more nervous about the existential threat than we ever let on. Right. And uh, the uh, protocols we developed about, you know, if the, now, even to this day, if a player has blood on his uniform, play stops and he has to get out of the game, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and those were developed back then. We put them in. We put them in. 
and uh, then they were picked up by other leagues, the NCAA, etc. Uh, so that was, and we hired the best experts in the world. That and there weren't that many. Uh, we hired a gentleman by the name of Dr. David Rogers from New York Hospital at the time, and he, you know, he had traveled to Africa, and he told us, "Look, there's only one way to transmit uh, HIV, and it's not by perspiration." Mm-hmm. And we were busy, you know, dealing with players who said they wouldn't play with magic when he came back because they didn't want to pick it up by sweat and the Australian Olympic team announced that they weren't going to play against the US team because right. Magic Johnson was on it. I mean it was So what do you think about Magic now and how I love start? him. I love him. He's he you know he's uh, he was the first of the protease inhibitors. I'm an early user of that. Yeah. Interestingly enough, by a doctor, Dr. David Ho, who we had had at our team physicians meetings a couple of years earlier because we had some notion that our players might be at risk. Mm-hmm. Um, Given their lifestyle? Yes. Yeah. So, So... It wasn't all shocking, but we... But he was like a big player, right? Yeah, I mean, like... Yeah. And, and actually, I, I, I'd i like to say in something that I think I've learned uh, and embedded over the years about the importance of sports and the role that it can play in engaging the world in conversations. Yeah. Uh, magic and to a lesser extent the NBA played a role in changing the debate on a global basis about AIDS. No, it was it was definitely a moment. It was a moment in that moment. You, you know, know in that uh, whole Linda Ellaby did a special yeah, with that little that. girl who started crying uh, because she just wanted people to look at her like she was normal. Yep. And uh, we've seen Yao Ming um, go to a migrant camp in china and the girl little girl was crying same way uh, we saw the chinese government reached out to us and we did a series of public service announcements with magic and yao ming mm-hmm. to have people call in if they were hiv positive because the government was admitting it at that point and i think the aaron diamond phone lines collapsed that was where dr Hall yeah. was under the weight of the inbound interest. So many phone calls. You know, so so it was really, it, it was mind-numbing to me at the time, but not surprising in a funny way. But I, you know, but it just cemented in me that that we have a role to play, all sports do, in, in, in answering questions, uh, shaping norms, and responding to, behavior in a way where a statement has to get made so david well and so outside of that though i mean clearly that was a that was a big moment just in controversies in general i mean how did you handle them like what was the hardest part being about a handling? lawyer it makes it easy to me the client was the nba okay okay so the question is what's in the best interest of the nba so you were able to distance you, yourself then and you go in and you you know that's what you do. I I grew up at a time as a lawyer when you focus on the client. Lawyers weren't heard. Now 
a lawyer who doesn't hold a press conference before, during, and after the case goes to the jury isn't somehow doing what he perceives to be his job. In the days of old, you would say, oh, I, I can't comment. You'll talk to my client. Right. And they'll decide what they want to say or not. But that doesn't happen. But to me, you know, run our test goes up into the stands because some idiot fan threw a cup of beer at him. And all of a sudden, we have a full-fledged melee at the palace at Auburn Hills. And, uh, you know, it was time to decide something. So you decide it because that's what you do when you're the commissioner. And so we suspended him and, you know, did all kinds of things that, you know, in the subsequent arbitration by the Players Association were held up as arbitrary, capricious, crazy, you name it. But yeah. you do what you have to do and that's it. And uh, So you uh, just looked at it from a very, well, I mean, you know, from a, from a very technical point well, of that's view. That's it. Even, you, yeah. you know, and then you have to decide on certain things. And, and, and I have one thing that I had decided a long time ago because the NBA was my client. The idea was, at least the way I did it, was decide as fast as possible so that the discussion becomes whether I was an idiot or a uh, didn't take it seriously enough and got the spirit, the functioning anger or interest away from the players because they had to go out and play basketball. And, and, and in some re- ways, the our test incident is really a good test case because between the time he went into the stands at 9.45 on a Friday night mm-hmm. and 6 o'clock Sunday when I made the decision, I would say that the footage of that brawl probably was run 100,000 yep. times. Repeated over and if, over again. Right, right. If we weren't in a digital world, I would say they ran the sprockets <laughs> off of the right. film, but there was no film. And that was absolutely the case uh, as many times and for as long as you I remember being in Davos at the World Economic Forum, and I, as a favor, I said, okay, I'll go on CNN to talk about whatever they wanted to ask me. And instead of anything else, what they wanted to say was, well, so you've had some tough times. And I said, you're running the film of run our test aren't you as i stand here in my winter ski jacket talking to you <laughs> well yes i said thank you very much i really appreciate your attention and concern so it was like almost too good to right be true but we said okay we're gonna you know like, <laughs> after that weekend of watching tape i said okay i'm gonna get out of my bathrobe and we're going down to madison square so going we're gonna have a press conference right and that's what we did and a similar thing when uh, we had a referee scandal where a referee was uh, you know, brought in by the FBI mm-hmm. to question his, you know, you know, gambling on games or giving tips, or I can't even remember what it was right. at the time, but it was devastating, and we did that. And, and you, had, you had to make those decisions quickly. So for you, I it's always make the decisions quickly. Right, that's right. I, it was kind of interesting. It, you know, we have a, we have a his, history. It's kind of interesting where, where. Uh, the commissioner in the NBA has the right to do that. And, and then you can appeal it, but the player sits. Whereas in baseball, if you file an appeal, you play until the appeal is decided. Play, right. And so I, I remember an owner calling me and saying, you know, I'm a, uh, I believe in due process. <laughs> 
And I said, actually, so do I. But there are ways to waive it, and one of those is to sign up as a player or an owner in the NBA. <laughs> and uh, that's what that's what we did. So, David, what's what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? The best piece of advice I've ever gotten is don't miss an opportunity to keep your mouth closed. <laughs> okay? I'm not suggesting I follow it as religiously as I should, (laughs) but you're more likely to get in trouble for talking too much than not. And that's the best advice. The other, the other advice was, and it's, it's, uh, it's not good advice, but I followed it. And that is that, you know, hard work is good for you. And so I am, uh, an obsessive compulsive hard worker. Hard worker. Well, what advice would you would you give that same advice to other people? Like what what is Well, my advice to other people are a couple of things we talked about. One is times have changed. You used to be able to stand at the side of the road, wait for traffic to ease and then scamper across. Now, if you're not ready to walk into traffic, you're right. not going to get to the other side. And that's metaphorical, but I believe it now. That's why you test everything you do and the like. And details do matter. You know, whoever said God is in the details Mm -hmm. is right. And you have to be obsessive compulsive about the details. If you're going to bother doing it, do it. Uh, You know, and be open to learning new things. Because if you understand the march of history, whatever it is that you're comfortable with and are doing, you think is state of the art in 10 years is going to be a big waste of time. So, David, so we have about five, ten minutes left, and I want to rapid fire. You, you mean you didn't allow three hours? <laughs> <laughs> I wish we had. Um, so I want to rapid fire some questions Go to right you ahead. that are more like on the practical side, like for people to really get a sense of like, you know, just practical advice. How do you handle conflict in the office? I handle conflict in the office usually by bringing the people together and and imposing a solution. And uh, if anyone doesn't care to respect that solution, they know where they should go and they'll get a good reference. That's good. How do you handle criticism? It it ticks me off, but when I close the door, I try to take it to heart and step away from myself and say, maybe it's right. How do you find talent? Uh, you know, when you're in a particular place for a long time, you see a lot of people, you meet a lot of people, and you say, that's somebody that at the right time and at the right place in the position becomes available to the other people I want. And I read everything that's relevant to my business or related business. And you uh, stay close to good headhunters, executive recruiters. And you have a circle of people within the family at the NBA who know where their counterparts are and others as well. So it's not that hard. Okay, so you, it's like you tap your network then oh, basically, absolutely. right? We tap the network. And the network of not just me, but of all the, the people that, that are invested in the league with me. And that's has that includes owners and right. colleagues at the executive level as well. What would you have done if you weren't the NBA commissioner? I'd be litigating still. I'd be loving it. So that was, was that was there. really your dream. That was a dream yes, career for that you. That was a dream career, and I only left the firm 
with the understanding that I would be welcomed back after two or three years if I wanted to return. I thought that the practice of law was the cat's pajamas. And, uh, and in some ways it was interesting as I look back because litigators always think too much of themselves. They think they can master anything. So one day you're doing securities law, the next day antitrust and maybe some other things. Mm-hmm. And so you have to cycle and recycle and that's good. And I think that's good training. So I recommend that people be lawyers to teach them how to think teach them how to issue spot and if they litigate it teaches them how to learn new how to, areas and how to communicate fields. really oh everything is about sales yes a lawyer exactly. a good lawyer is a salesman and a good commissioner is a salesman that's a great that's a great way to put it um and just finally david do you miss it do you miss it at all i don't i don't there are times when when something comes up where I, I feel protective about the nba and mm-hmm. think that i'd like to, you know it's sort of like a fighter you know, passing a gym, hears the bell and goes into a fighting stance. Uh, but in terms of the day-to-day, et cetera, I don't. I'm, uh, uh, I'm still, in effect, an advisor and mm-hmm. have concerns for the NBA, and I always will. But I'm having too much fun in the other things that I'm doing, so I don't miss it. And now you get to go to basketball games and just enjoy it, right? That's exactly right. I could either root for the home team. (laughs) You know, I don't care whether the referees screw it up or not. (laughs) That's someone else's problem. If if there's a fight, the commissioner better look into this. Uh, You know, and so so on. But uh, so uh, basketball has actually become more enjoyable to watch. When you're you're, you're limited to rooting for the officials (laughs) and hoping... And hoping that uh, the game isn't decided by a bad call or that there isn't an injury or there isn't a fight or that the courtside signage is changing properly, etc. This basketball is really fun to watch, both in person (laughs) and on TV. Really, I didn't know that. It's different, right? It is different. (laughs) And now I can understand why it's a self-perpetuating kind of a game and an interest because new stars, new angles, new statistics, new everything. It's a great game. Next week, Radiate After Dark. We're very fortunate and a lot of it, as we all know, is luck. And a lot of it is how you play off of that luck and good fortune. A special dinner conversation with Showtime Chairman Matt Blank. We wine and dine with a bunch of heavy hitters in tech and media and talk about how to make it in the grueling world of both Hollywood and Silicon Valley. Thanks for joining us. I'm Betty Lou. If you liked what you heard, please give us your feedback at radiateinc.com slash feedback. And also please review us on iTunes. You can also find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. See you next week on Radiate.